Who can tell me what mahram is in their own words? Yes, Sahih. Those who you can't marry with. Those you can't marry with. Okay. What about the husband? But she married him. No. Those who you can't marry with, they are your mahram. Is the husband mahram? <laughs> I'm tricking you. No, no, you are right. Those you can never marry, plus, plus the husband. He's a special case. I'm just trying to joke with you. Today I want to talk to you about what mahram means. It's an Islamic term, as the brother said. Mahram means anyone who you are never allowed to ever get married to forever in any circumstance. I repeat, a mahram is somebody that the man or woman is forbidden from ever marrying in any circumstance forever and ever. And the mahram is also a person whom a woman, a Muslim woman who is covered, can take off her hijab in front of. She doesn't have to wear her veil. And he can see parts of her body. And a mahram is someone whom a woman can be with him in private, with no one else around. So who are these people? The Qur'an has enumerated them one by one. And it's very interesting to know because a lot of young people ask me, what is a mahram? Can I take off my scarf in front of so-and-so and so-and-so? Am I allowed to hug so-and-so and so-and-so? So let's have a look insha'Allah. There are two ayat in the Qur'an which talk about the maharim. Maharim is plural for mahram. They are in Surat An-Nisa, verse 23, and Surat An-Nur, verse 31. I'll just go straight to the English, insha'Allah. In Surat An-Nisa, verse 23, Allah says, Forbidden to you are your mothers, your daughters, your sisters, your father's sisters, and your mother's sisters, your brother's daughters, and your sister's daughters, your milk mothers, your milk sisters, the mothers of your wives, and the stepdaughters, who are your foster children, born of your wives, with whom you have consummated the marriage. But if you have not consummated the marriage with them, there will be no blame upon you if you marry their daughters. In the other verse it says, وَقُلْ لِلْمُؤْمِنَاتِ يَغْضُضْنَ مِنْ أَبْصَارِهِنَّ وَيَحْفَظْنَ فُرُوجَهُنَّ وَلَا يُبْدِينَ زِينَتَهُنَّ إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا وَلْيَضْرِبْنَ بِخُمُرِهِنَّ عَلَى جُيُوبِهِنَّ وَلَا يُبْدِينَ زِينَتَهُنَّ إِلَّا لِبُعُولَتِهِنَّ إِلَّا لِبُعُولَتِهِنَّ أَوْ آبَائِهِنَّ أَوْ آبَاءِ بُعُولَتِهِنَّ أَوْ أو إخوانهن أو بني إخوانهن أو بني أخواتهن أو نسائهن 
أو ما ملكت أيمانهن أو التابعين غير أولي الإربة من الرجال أو الطفل الذين لم يظهروا على عورات النساء وليضربن بأرجلهن ليعلم ولا يضربن بأرجلهن ليعلم ما يخفين من زينتهن وتوبوا إلى الله وتوبوا إلى الله جميعا أيها المؤمنون لعلكم تفلحون. What's funny is I said I'm just going to say it in English and then I went for the Arabic. I hope you enjoyed that little recitation. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the second verse I want to talk about is this one. And enjoin. Enjoin means to politely, lovingly, respectfully remind <laughs> believing women to cast down their looks. This is a verse that follows another verse where Allah had already said to the men to cast down their looks at women, meaning lustful, inappropriate, disrespectful gazes. Allah talks to both men and women, do not gaze at each other and cast at each other in a disrespectful, inappropriate look. Allah then says to cast down their looks and guard their private parts and not reveal their adornments except that which is revealed of itself. And to draw their veils over their jabes, I'm going to come back to that. And not to reveal their adornments save to their husbands or their fathers or the fathers of their husbands or of their own sons or the sons of their husbands or their brothers or the sons of their brothers or the sons of their sisters or the women with whom they associate or those that are in their bondage. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit. Or the mate attendants in their service free of sexual interest or boys that are yet unaware of illicit matters pertaining to women. Nor should they stamp their feet on the ground in, shut, in such manner that their hidden ornament becomes revealed. Believers, turn together all of you to Allah in repentance that you may attain true success. So brothers and sisters, what is a mahram? In these verses we find that there's ten types. One, the fathers, your father and mother. And upwards. Anyone know what upwards means? Father and mother and upwards means the grandparents, the great-grandparents, the great-great-grandparents. Number two, your sons and daughters and downwards, meaning your sons and daughters, your great-grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, all the way down. Number three, your brothers and sisters, whether they are half from the father or the mother or from both. Number four, the mahram is your nephew or your niece and downwards, meaning if your nephews and nieces got married and they had children, their children are also your mahram, and so on. Number five, your uncles and aunts, and down, uh, your uncles and aunts, and upwards, meaning your father and mother's brothers and, si brothers and sisters, and also your father and mother's uncles and aunts, and, their, uh, and your grandparents' uncles and aunts. So your, your uncles and aunts, your great uncles and aunts, your great great uncles and aunts, all of them are mahram as well. Number six, your father-in-law and your mother-in-law, and upwards, meaning the, the, the great-grandfather, the grandfather-in-law, and the grandmother-in-law, and the great-grandfather-in-law, great-grandmother-in-law. Number seven, your son-in-law and your daughter-in-law and downwards. Your son-in-law and your daughter-in-law, obviously their children become your grandchildren. Number eight, your father's wife and your mother's husband, meaning your stepfather and your stepmother. 
and upwards, meaning their fathers and their mothers and so on. And number nine, your husband's sons and your wife's daughters, meaning your stepson and your stepdaughter on both sides. And number ten, a lot of people don't know this one, your milk brother and your milk sister. They're the ones who have breastfed from your mother or you breastfed from their mother when you were an infant before you started eating solid food. When you're still breastfeeding, a baby can suckle from another mother. That mother who feeds that baby from her milk, the correct opinion is at least four stomachfuls. That particular baby that has suckled from another woman, or two other women, or three other women, doesn't matter how many, four stomachfuls each, that baby and you, you, becomes your brother or your sister. If they, let's give an example, your mother had you as a baby and breastfed another baby, four stomachfuls, that other baby becomes your brother or sister. And all your brothers and sisters become that baby's brother and sister. The other way around is true. If you got breastfed from that baby's mother, you become the brother or sister of their brothers and sisters. If you both got breastfed from each other's mothers, four stomachfuls, then you all become brothers and sisters and everybody connected to them becomes your family. Just like your own. They're all mahrams. Do you understand that part? And I wish, inshallah, one day, some of you who go to university or do a PhD or do some kind of research in science and genetics, there is actually now a research that started about the mother's breast milk. It does still carry genetic material from the mother in the very early stages of when the milk starts to be produced and the baby starts to actually um, receive some of the new genetics. It, has, it receives genetic material which alters it slightly. And, and this is new research that inshallah is developing. You can look it up. And Rasul said this 1,400 years ago that they become your mahrams, your brothers and sisters, by being breastfed. The husband's sons, meaning your stepsons and your stepdaughters, the stepdaughter can take off her hijab in front of her stepfather. You know that, right? And vice versa, also the girl. If it is safe and you don't fear inappropriate behavior, you're allowed. That stepfather, that stepdaughter, that stepson and that stepmother become mahrams. Even your children, your children's children. And the reason why the stepdaughter and the stepson, especially the stepdaughter is mentioned in the Quran, becomes mahram to the stepfather, is in order to support the relationship between the, the divorced mothers or the widowed mothers and their ch children, to not separate them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran mentioned when a man marries a woman who is widowed or divorced and she has children, especially a daughter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because daughters are normally living with the mother more often than the sons, and it put more emphasis on that because that is the more often case. And mothers are more attached to their, to, daughters are more attached to their mothers, and a lot of men in the past used to not want the daughters to be with them. They say, take them to their fathers. So Allah mentioned that for both, to, in order to keep the attachment and the connection with their mothers, with their fathers, so that the children can see all their parents and not stop seeing them just because they got remarried. 
So, brothers and sisters, um, this is basically the mahrams. Any one of these, you are never allowed to marry under any circumstance. And one person asked me, what if the father, the, the um, let's say the, you got divorced, a husband and wife got divorced, does the father-in-law and mother-in-law remain mahram? The answer is yes. Anyone you marry, and the idea, the, the condition in the Quran is you have consummated the marriage. You have consummated the marriage, then their parents, your wife's parents and your husband's parents, remain mahrams to you forever. And to your children forever. But after you divorce, God forbid, a divorce, only in divorce, then what happens? Only you, sorry, you also remain, they remain mahram, only you two are no longer mahram to each other, the husband and wife. That's it. But everybody else remains as a mahram. That's why when you get married, a new relationship is born, a new lineage, a new bloodline, and it stays forever. Even the in-laws, the father-in-law and the mother-in-law. Brothers and sisters, I'll move on quickly. The next verse I recited is a verse that a lot of people have controversy over. And I'm going to lovingly, respectfully, in a brotherly, in a caringly, in an academic way, pick on our sisters a little bit tonight. Uh, because we hear a lot of women these days, they object to when a man talks about this verse, the verse of hijab, the verse of how a woman should dress. And I would like to say, we Muslims, both men and women, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to the Qur'an, when it comes to understanding Islam, it doesn't matter who says it. Whether it's me as a man talking about women's issues, or a woman talking about men's issues. Whether it's a psychologist woman who, you know, talks to men about psychology and gives a class, men respect it. Whether it's a woman talking about genetics, or a man talking about menopause. So long as they're experts in the area, it's knowledge. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Knowledge has no discrimination. Knowledge is not sexist. So, whatever I say to you, brothers and sisters, we as Muslims understand, I am not giving you my opinion. We are learning together what Allah has taught us. I happen to have studied this and been trained. Alhamdulillah, I did Sharia and I had teachers. And I know in this area, Alhamdulillah, the Arabic language, some of you will know. But I happen to be sitting here in the seat and Allah has blessed me to share with you this knowledge. So, don't take it personal. I don't have to give this introduction, but in this day and age you do. So, brothers and sisters, let's learn about the boundaries in the Qur'an. We already said that Allah SWT said to the men to hold back their gaze, not to cast their look. Some people say, lower your gaze. You'll probably even find in some of the translations of some of the, 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 the editions in English say, lower your gaze. It, it's not literally lower your gaze. It's a metaphor. It means don't cast your gaze in an inappropriate and in a disrespectful manner. I used to tell, I tell the young people, there's looking and there's looking like this. And there's talking and talking. You all know the difference, right? Your common sense, your instinct tells you. Once you reach puberty, you understand what this means, looking, and what normal looking is. So there's a respectful look and there is a haram look, which Allah talks about. It says, don't cast your gaze, withhold it a little bit. Okay? So anyway, Allah talks to the men first, and then He talks to the women second. 
The ayah in the Quran over here, it talks about a few things. Number one, it says that the woman should not reveal her ornaments, meaning the things that she's not allowed to show in public, meaning to take off her hijab. What can she show in front of the mahram? She can only show in front of the mahram her hair, her neck, the sternum up here, a little bit above the chest over here, a little bit of the back, the shoulders, the arms. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, a lot of people don't know this, from the knees downwards. It shouldn't be from the knees upwards. And this is out of dignity and respect that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in balance, even in front of your father, your brother, your uncle, your son. There's still a aura. Aura means what should not be revealed of your skin, of your body. So the mother, for example, in front of her son is still covered in a certain way, but there are limits to how far she can show. And in all except for the husband and wife, there is no, nothing secret between the husband and wife when it comes to that. So Allah specifically says here that she can show her ornaments and show herself without the hijab in front of all these mahrams. She can also shake their hand, hug them if she feels comfortable. Even a kiss on the cheek is fine or on the forehead or on the hand. That's all good. Sit next to each other. It's your father, your brother, your son, your uncle, like that. Some people, they don't trust certain members of their family. They have reason to. They have suspicion. And I do know, but this is a rare occasion. There are sometimes members of the family, something's wrong with them. You know what I mean? If you feel like that, Allah subhanahu wa does not command you that you have to take off your hijab in front of them or be secluded with them. But in general, Allah subhanahu wa says, these people are your maharib. In general, people don't find sexual attraction to the maharib. Isn't that correct? In general. So the Quran talks about showing that. And then it says, your ornaments. What are the ornaments? Allah then says, إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا except what naturally appears of her. The scholars looked at this verse and said, what does it mean that she should not show her, any of her ornaments, meaning under her hijab, except what ordinarily appears of her? They didn't know what this means. So the, the companions themselves differed on the meaning of this, and I'll tell you the meanings. Abdullah ibn Abbas, who was a great companion of the Prophet ﷺ, along with other companions and scholars, such as later on Imam al-Nakhai, I don't know if you want to know all that information, they interpreted this verse to mean it means the clothing she wears, meaning she has no control over the clothing she wears. If she's walking and the wind happens to blow on the clothing, or as she's walking sometimes a shin may sort of shape out, or as she's walking, all those things, she's, they said the Quran is saying she has no control over that. So there's no blame over her, whatever happens there. So long as she's tried and gone out of her home. So this is only out of your home, in public. Ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Abbas, another companion of Rasulullah and others, they went the other way. They said, Allah does not hold her accountable for things she has no control over in her clothing, so long as she's tried to cover herself well before going out. Plus, it means the face and the hands. So they believe that the face and the hands don't have to be covered. And there are two opinions about that. 
They said, since the face and the hands should not, that do not have to be covered in a woman when she goes out of her home, therefore even some of the ornaments that appear on her face and hands are okay as well. Like what? They said, like, let's say jewelry on her hand, a ring, even a bracelet, sometimes the, the, the sleeve may go up a little bit and the, and the bracelets show, there's no problem in that, this is normal. Uh, and they said, light, light cosmetics. A lot of brothers don't know this and sisters, light cosmetics. And it is a difference of opinion. But light cosmetics, they say, إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا Meaning what ordinarily appears of her. So, what are light cosmetics? This is the other opinion of the scholars' interpretation. That is, light kuhul, ithmid. Have you ever heard of ithmid? Ithmid in the past is a very fine powder that they used to make out of this special type of rock. And they used, even men and women used to put it in their eyes as a remedy. And sometimes for cosmetics. The ancient Egyptians used to put it on as well. In this day and age, I think we have so much of this different eyeliner and, and, and the stuff you put inside. I don't know. But this stuff used to be used to, to help the eye and to strengthen the hair and stuff like that. The point is, it is a form of cosmetics. And Ibn Abbas and others say, this is okay. So long as it's light and not overboard. Uh, equivalent to that are things like skin products, facial skin products, or facial skin applications that are, are for the purpose of hiding blemishes on the skin or to cover up uh, flaws on her skin or for example like a concealer or a foundation I think I'm saying them right I think and the let's say for example someone has a pigment a, a strange pigmentation under the eyes and they want to cover it and then go out. Ibn Abbas and the rest say, so long as her intention is not to attract the eye of the public towards her. But she does it just to fix her skin a little bit uh, and if she believes that, it's good for her eyes. So it comes down to the intention. Any much more than that is not allowed in Islam. Except in front of her mahrams or her husband or other women, that's fine. She can put as much makeup as she wants. I hope, inshallah, I made that clear. So there are two opinions. One this way, the other one that way. The safer option and the more taqwa is to not put anything on at all and go out and enjoy the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created you to build your self-esteem and to love the way Allah made you and be proud and be brave about it. The guy who wants you to marry you is not going to marry you because of makeup or looks, right? And, make and it makes a statement. The hijab makes a statement. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that. We'll leave it for question and answers. The other statement I want to make is about the verse that it talks about the veil. Now, I've seen on social media a few people who've come up now and they just talk from their heads, giving their own interpretation of the Qur'an as they wish. And what's even more scarier than that is many of them, really, I can tell from the way they're talking, they don't know Arabic. They can't even pronounce the letters properly. They truly don't know Arabic. They're going by the different translated versions of different scholars that have sort of put the closest words they can find. Our Quran is not the English. That just gives us an idea. I want everybody to understand that. And they also put commentary. So let's go into the Arabic. Allah says, In Surah Yusuf, Allah says, We have sent this Quran 
in the Arabic language so that you may understand and comprehend. Therefore, you need to know the Arabic. You need to go back to the original Arabic, not the translation. Translation is just a guide. You need to go back to the original Arabic because there, is, there are more vocabularies in Arabic than English. It's a large, wider vocabulary in Arabic than English. There are more metaphors in Arabic than English. It's impossible to get the proper, exact translation into English. So you can't rely on the English version, brothers and sisters. You need to ask. So what does the Quran say? It says, I'll just say as it is without trying to influence anybody to dress in a certain way. I'll tell you and it's your decision, inshaAllah. What does Allah say in Surah An-Nur? He says, let them... I'll give you exactly what it means. Let them grab their, their own khimar. Their own khimar. The women. Khumurihinna. Which means they're the women, what belongs to them, what they are known for. Khimurihinna. Ala. On top of. Juyubihinna. Juyubihinna in the English language is translated as. Sorry, the word says bosoms. Sometimes it says breasts. That's, not, that, that's the general meaning, but the actual meaning, al-jayb, jayb in the Arabic language, is the opening that is above the chest. So it reveals the neck, reveals the sternum, can reveal up here. It's like when you wear a shirt, there remains an opening. Depending on how big the opening, that's called a jayb. And Allah mentions it in, about Maryam, alayhi salam. He says that they blew the soul he, the angel Jibreel blew the soul into her jayb. The soul of Jesus Christ went into her jayb, meaning the opening of her garment. Not the breast itself, the garment. I was very shocked to hear some people say, in the olden days, this verse is saying that in the olden days, women used to reveal their chests and God told them cover it. This is absurd. This is historical, a historical fallacy. Allah did not send the verse down, tell them, cover your, your chest. In the Arab world, they didn't do that. Nor in the Roman world, nor in the Persian world, nor in the Asian world. Nobody. Unless they were, you know, some remote places of the world that were an exception. Listen to this. Throughout history, the headscarf has been a characteristic of culture defining women and men. Men used to always also wear the khimar. This is a khimar, brothers and sisters. This is what a khimar in the Arabic language is similar to this one. So it's a veil. Now this is a man's khimar. This is what men wear. Have you seen them in Saudi how they wear it in the Emirates? Dubai, this one. Have you seen the men wear it? We see them everywhere. This, my dear brothers and sisters, it's called different names. Ghutra uh, or whatever, but in the Arabic original language, khimar. Now if you just say khimar, it means any piece of veil. Okay, this is a khimar. But is it on my head yet? No. We have to go back to the original history. We have to go to the Arabic language to see what did people understand as khimar. Allah sent it down in Arabic for, for them to understand. And we find that throughout history, khimar has always been a headscarf for men and women. A headscarf for men and women. Now listen on. According to a CNN uh, style report by uh, Amber Nicole Anston, January 2021, she says, earliest documentation of the headscarf goes back to Mesopotamian society, which is about 6,000 to 8,000 years ago. You can watch the History Channel, the Britannica, and the Metropolitan Museum of Arts. The headscarf has always been around 8,000 years ago. 
Stay with me. The head covering were first written into law around 13th century BC in an ancient Assyrian text that mandated that women, daughters and widows cover their heads as a sign of piety. And headscarves were forbidden to women of the lower class and the promiscuous. They weren't allowed to wear it because it was considered only for the ones with dignity. This is 13th century BC. Not even, I'm not even talking about Arabia. The headscarf was known for women. Again, there is this... This guy is a, is a fashion and textile historian. Well, it's a woman. She's a fashion and textile historian named Nancy uh, uh, Dale of New York University. She said, There is the underlying idea of having your head covered as a way of symbolizing being a respectable person. The headscarf helps to control that. These are words of non-Muslims in the fashion industry who know the history of the headscarf. Now, the headscarf was popularized in the religions that emerged from the region with early Christians and Jews covering their hair with veils according to their sacred texts. From the monarchs, including Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II, to the daring flappers of the 1920s in this article, women in Britain remained wearing headscarves and long, loose covering of their bodies um, till around the 50s and 60s when they went to work after World War II. You can see, this is now my words, you can see a vintage of... Um, of this during the Industrial Revolution, if you know what I'm talking about, on something called the History Channel online, of European, of British women dressed almost like Muslims. From the east to the west, from the north to the south, it was a culture, religion, and social norm of women to wear a head covering. The headscarf continued into fashion and modeling of women even till recent, but they turned it into a fashion rather than a sign of faith and dignity. And I personally admire the recent Somalian sister uh, in the US, uh, Somalian-born sister who was a supermodel. Her name was, is Halima Aden. Have you heard of her? Halima Aden, who made waves in the fashion industry when she became the first hijab-wearing supermodel. But for the sake of Allah and her dignity as a Muslim, graceful Muslim woman, she left the industry because she felt it was incompatible with their beliefs. This is a woman who is in the fashion world and she's telling you how hijab was more important to her and what it meant to her and what it safeguarded from her. She hasn't left the world of the fashion. She helps women, Muslim women. She makes modest clothing, so she hasn't left her business. Just to show you that leaving haram does not mean that you're out on the street. You can still do a lot. The point that I'm trying to make by all of this, brothers and sisters, is a lot of people go into the Arabic language and they go, what is a khimar? It's a covering. You know, it's something you cover the table with. Yeah, it's true. But when Allah is talking to the people and telling the women, and draw your headscarf, your khimar, it means the khimar that women normally wear. The one up here. Do I look, do I look all right? Should I blink my eyes? So you go like this. This is a khimar. Men, men wear it. Yeah? Is it, is it alright? Alright. How do I look? Should have got a blonde one. You know, they're blonde to look like hair. I know, I know the tricks, I know. So this is a khimar. A man wears it, and a woman wears it. And usually in the deserts, because it's got to cover the neck from the heat, and from the sand when they do this. What Allah said is, draw your khimars, O women, the one you normally wear, the headscarf that's always been known since day one of this world, all women wore it, over your jade, meaning, do that. Cover all this. Ooh, there we are. I'll take it off. I'm not used to it. I got an actually YouTube clip back when I was about 25. I gave a talk. Those are desired paradise, and I've got it on. 
Those who watch it, it's still up there. Halfway through, I just take it off. I got annoyed for it, man. It got me so... So I'm just saying that because it's not easy on women. If I couldn't even wear it, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect you and bless you, sisters. So this is what... But I've got a beard, though, in heat and cold. All right? So you can't say anything about that. Brothers and sisters, so... It's very clear in the Qur'an, the khimar that Allah is talking about, and the way He said it is that, and to cover like this. Okay? Anyway, brothers and sisters, that's what the Qur'an says. Now, brothers and sisters, this is where I'm going to stop. And as I promised you, we've got questions and answers, inshallah, from the audience. We've got our sisters. Is the adopted son a mahram to the woman who adopted him? If she's not mahram, it means he can marry her. Did you know that? Yeah. So, the answer is, brothers and sisters, an adopted son is not a mahram to the woman who adopted him. Why? Because he's not biologically her son. There is no connection except he is a stranger whom she looked after. And that's a great reward. But he is not mahram to her. Unless he was a baby and she breastfed him. Otherwise, he's not a mahram, brother. No. And that's exactly the verse in the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about Zayd who used to be the adopted son of the Prophet Zayd is the only companion mentioned by name in the Qur'an. And Allah broke a stereotype that the Arabs used to have. Number one, you are not allowed to claim that a child that is not biologically yours to be your son or daughter. You can say it in a metaphoric way. I mean, I say, how are you, son? How are you, daughter? I don't mean it in a real way. That's number one. We have to call them by their own father's names, the real father, because that's their identity. That's number one. Number two, Rasulullah had adopted Zayd and used to be called Zayd, son of Muhammad. Then Allah sent the verse down when Zayd's real father came looking for him. And Prophet didn't want to give Zayd to his father, and oh, he was hesitant. And Allah said the verse down, He said, Call them by their father's names, meaning Zayd son of Haritha. So he became Zayd ibn Haritha. And the Prophet then went to the father and gave him the option. He said, I will ask your son if he wants to stay with you or me. And the father agreed and the son chose Muhammad So he became Zayd ibn Haritha. And from becoming adopted, he became the foster son or the, uh, the, the, the one who was raised by the prophet, not the foster, the one who was raised by the prophet And Zayd married a woman, and then they ended up divorced. And the prophet married the divorced mother, the divorced wife of Zayd. And Allah says this: this is in order to break the stereotype and to allow more room between what is halal and haram to understand the truthfulness. You don't have to do that, but the prophet did that. And uh, Subhanallah, Orientalists talk about this in a very bad way. But Rasul is mercy to mankind and the one who was ordered by Allah. And he is the one who yeah, is the purest of purest of men. He would never do something that is, that is wrong. Sisters asked a very good question. So number one, tell, uh, tell us about the niqab. What is the origin of the niqab? Is it sunnah or is it cultural? And are there difference of opinions about the niqab? What is the niqab? I told you already what is the khimar, correct? We all know what the khimar is now. The khimar is a covering, but when you say khumurihinna, the women's khimar, it literally means the one they put on their head like this. The niqab is the one where you cover the face like this and show the eyes. 
The <laughs> and there are different names. There's the one that covers the entire face. Burqa and so on and so forth. The niqab is the one that covers the, the, the face except for the eyes. Where did this come from? Well, in ancient history, women in different cultures did wear niqab. They did cover their face. In before, even before um, Muhammad sallallahu came out. It's documented history among Muslims and non-Muslims. Among people before Muhammad sallallahu came. But as time went on, it turned from religious to cultural. And especially the ones in the desert, women wore it for desert purposes. There was a necessity for it. The Mesopotamian women, 8,000 years ago, also covered their face out of necessity because they used to work in the fields. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was no hijab for the first 10 years. What do I mean by hijab? Hijab is a modern word that we use. It's not the word mentioned in the Quran. Hijab is the wrong word, but we use it because of social construct, meaning socially we constructed this word and everybody knows what we mean. The Quran talks it in detail. The niqab is covering the face. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, for the first 10 years, there was no uh, verse about drawing their khimars over their necks and over the sternum and so on. Until 10 years later, the verse, this verse came down. And the women of the, it was in Medina. It was in Medina when the verse came down. More than 10 years. The women of Medina understood. Aisha she narrates this hadith, they understood what the verse meant because they know the Arabic language. They immediately went into their homes and they covered their hair properly because in, the, in those days they used, to, oh man, they used to put this on their hair and they used to, what they used to do was they used to put it to the back like that. Right? And sometimes they would tie it and make a thing and sometimes they'll make a ball up here like that. I hope that kind of, I just did it fast. Um, so they used to do that and then they covered themselves. The women of Medina, the, the hadith says that they came out covering their entire face except one eye so they can know where they're going. Now here the scholars have differed on this. Be controversial, classical scholars of difference of opinion. I don't know how much you all know about the meanings of difference of opinion in fiqh. I don't know if you've ever heard of the word khilaf mu'tabar which means a difference of opinion that is based on evidence on both sides, which means both of them carry weight and both of them could be right. Both of them could be right more than the other. Anyway, the covering of the face was an interpretation. And the majority of the women of Medina chose to cover their face. That's a fact. But does it mean that it is obligatory? Or does it mean it is a sunnah? There is no doubt it is a sunnah act, meaning the act of the predecessors, the righteous women of the past. But is it obligatory? There are two opinions on that. I'm not going to go into too much detail on this. One large group of scholars and schools of thought says it's obligatory. It's considered awra. You shouldn't show it, just like the hair. And the other group say no, because of many hadiths. One of them is one in Sahih Muslim where Asma radiallahu anha, she had reached puberty and she would take food to the Prophet when he was in the cave of Thawr, when he was um, migrating and she would bring him food and one day she was wearing something that was a little bit 
transparent, it, was, it wasn't her fault. And the Prophet ﷺ looked away. And he said, Ya Asma, if a girl reaches uh, puberty, then nothing of her body is allowed to be seen except this and this. And he pointed to his hands and his face. Unfortunately, some scholars of hadith said this is weak. Others, they said it is strong. And they're all reputable and all have their good explanation. The opinion I follow is the scholars who say it's not obligatory. And the reasons they say that is because if it was obligatory, these are some of the reasons which have been refuted as well. Some of the reasons are is if it was obligatory, it would not be, uh, it would not be impermissible, haram, to cover your face during ihram in hajj. Because the hair is compulsory to cover, the rest of the body is compulsory to cover, yet only the face is impermissible to cover during ihram. The scholars who said that it's not obligatory use this as one of their arguments. The other argument is that when you look at the verse and it says hinna, the khimar is known historically not to cover the face. And Allah would have said, cover your face, but He said, Juyubihin. Draw your khimars, which was known to be open, to cover the jayb. And the jayb is from the neck downward, it's not the face. That's now three arguments that they use. There are more arguments, but these are the two opinions. Whether you choose this one or you choose that one, this one. Cannot the one who has niqab is not allowed Islamically shara'an to enforce upon the other one to tell the other one that they're not wearing proper hijab, nor are they permitted Islamically to pressure them into that. <coughs> and the ones who don't who follow the other opinion and don't cover their face, consider a sunnah, cannot put the other ones down either, or pressure them or tell them off that they're being extreme. They respect each other. It's a choice, inshallah, and both of them have strong evidence. I personally would go with the easier one because of the societies we live in. It makes more sense to follow the evidence in this society. To me, now a lot of people can say, oh, we don't want your opinion. That's fine, you don't have to take my opinion. But it's not my opinion, I'm following the opinions of the scholars all the way to the end, and the sources from the Qur'an and Sunnah. That it would be easier to take that opinion in livelihood, and Islam is not about making life harder, just easier. However, with the niqab, a sister who wants to fear Allah even more, wants to obey Allah even more, wants to be a, a more righteous Muslim, may Allah reward her. I applaud that, subhanAllah. So brothers and sisters, that's in summary. What is the ruling on nose piercings? Are they considered adornments that should be covered in front of non-mahrams? Now you all heard me before. I told you there are different opinions. One from Abdullah ibn Abbas and one, uh, one from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Abdullah ibn Abbas. They're the classical difference of opinion. What is considered adornment and what is not? Abdullah ibn, I'm just repeating, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, the companion of Prophet interpreted the verse of adornments to mean only the clothing that's outside. Uh, sorry, to mean Everything, everything including the face and hands, except for the clothing outside. Abdullah ibn Abbas says, no, no. 
him and his team, the interpretation is, so long as she can show her face and hands, even what she has on her face and on her hands is okay. Such as jewelry, some makeup, and even if you want a nose ring. However, let me say something about a nose ring. A nose ring is considered an adornment. It's considered an adornment, an ornament. And it would be preferable if a sister didn't wear it in public to be on the safe side. We always love to follow our deen in the best way. It's not going to cause you harm if you don't wear it. She's still beautiful, she's still alright, she's still amazing. I mean, it will save you from accumulating a lot of the mucus and snots and stuff. I've seen it, they've taken it out. And <laughs> but if you want to put a nose ring on, I cannot say it's haram because I don't have textual evidence to say it's haram. The only textual evidence to say it's haram is to go by the opinion of Abdullah ibn, ibn Mas'ud with the verse that you're supposed to cover your face. If you cover your face and you go with that opinion, you shouldn't be wearing nose rings outside in public. But subhanAllah, a lot of the scholars who have been asked about nose rings, nearly all of them say avoid it in public. Avoid it in public to be on the safe side if you want to obey Allah properly. So, uh, it's uh, now uh, there's another thing about nose rings. Culture. If you live in a culture, in a tribe for example, or in a particular part of a society where women are known to all wear nose rings as a sign of something, then she can wear it. For example, in India, correct me if I'm wrong, whoever's Indian here, I know that if, if a woman gets married in India, do they wear something on their forehead? Do they put... Not you, you're Lebanese, you're not allowed to answer. I need, I need, any Indians here can correct me? Is that also in the Muslim culture that if a woman gets married, she puts a, a ring on her forehead here? Am I right or wrong? Or in her nose? Only Hindus do this. Hindus only do it? Oh, okay then. Is it a religious thing or is it a cultural thing? It's a religious thing. Religious. If something is religious, we shouldn't copy the religious acts. If it's a term. But if it's a cultural, purely cultural thing, I know that nose rings came from a history of... They started off with rebellion. Uh, women who rebelled, they liked to wear nose rings. I mean, there's a history about it. But this day and age, I don't know, some women wear it out of rebellion, some people to make a statement, some women just like it. So I can't say it's haram. However, it's somewhere in between. Can men wear shorts above the knees? Only a little bit above the knees. Why? The hadith is in Bukhari about the Prophet ﷺ when he was sitting on the well in a particular closed place. Then Abu Bakr entered and he had with him Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Prophet ﷺ had Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was standing at the door. The door knocked. Someone knocked. Said, who is this? He says, Abu Bakr. He says, let him in. Abu Bakr came in. Then Umar came in. Then Uthman came in. The hadith is long. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari says, Rasul ﷺ was sitting on the well and I could see the whiteness of his thigh. Which means just the starting point above the knees, sitting on the well. And when Uthman came in, he rolled his pants down. And when he was asked, they sa he said, how can I not be shy in front of someone whom the angels are shy in front of? In fact, that's another hadith when Aisha spoke to her, but uh, spoke to him about something else. But it, combining the two hadiths, it means Prophet was shy and respectful of him, so he rolled it down. فالرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم then said من جر ثوبه خيلاء 
whoever drags his thought out of pride. Therefore, the reason is meaning out of pride. And Abu Bakr whose pants going down, he said, we know your intention, Ya Abu Bakr. Therefore, it's based on intention. In our society today, nobody in the entire world, not even on Pluto, in the universe that I know of, maybe, maybe there are some remote places, will ever think of below the ankles as anything got to do with upper class and lower class, pride or no pride. For this reason, I go with the group of scholars who, and especially that book that I, I read that, the argument against it being haram is more correct, insha'Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Some people follow a particular school of thought very, very strictly. That's another topic as well. And they say, no, that's my school of thought. I'm going to stick to it like as if it's a religion. Khalas, it's their opinion. And that's what they want to do, inshallah. At least they're not doing anything haram. May Allah reward everyone for their efforts. Can women show their feet while they are praying? Very good question. Yep, it's a question from there. So this is a classical question that the scholars have dealt with a long time ago. And Ibn Taymiyyah talks about it in his Mujama' al-Fiqih. He says, Mujma'at al-Fatawa, sorry. <coughs> a woman's feet is awra. It shouldn't be shown in front of stranger men, non-mahram men. But it's a lesser awra. Lesser awra. It's not a strong awra. Correct? So when she prays, if majority of her salat, majority of it, say 70% of the time, her feet are covered, and about 30% of the time they show it a little bit and then they get covered on and off, Let's say when she goes to sujood, when she goes to ruku'ah, when she sits, then that's okay. It doesn't affect her salat. But if it stays her feet showing throughout the entire salat, then it does affect her salat. She should not pray. I mean, the prayer is still valid, but the rewards obviously are diminished. Unless she has a problem in her feet. Some sister says, can I wear socks? Yes, the socks covers the aura. Or, if you don't want to wear socks, then you're going to have to cover your feet majority time of the prayer, even if it showed every now and then. I hope that answers the question. So, uh, the first question is, what if you're wearing tight clothing, like the one I'm wearing here, around your wrists, and you want to make wudu, what can we do? For the sisters, sometimes as well, they have maybe a tight, uh, what do you call it, an underscarf. Is that what it's called? Underscarf? Underscarf. Um, or she's had a hijab on tight. And also socks. Okay. The first one, if, you're, if a man is wearing tight or a woman, on the arms or the legs, like tight pants or tight, then you have to, I can unbuckle it, I have to unbuckle it, or you take that off. You cannot, your wudu cannot be accepted or valid if you haven't done your arms. The only parts of the wudu, the body in wudu, which the wudu remains valid if you miss them, the correct opinion that, that I, I'm following is the mouth and the nose. The mouth and the nose, you can miss them. As for the arms, the head wiping at once, the ears, uh, the arms and the feet and the face, they're compulsory. Because they're mentioned in the Quran. They're mentioned in the Quran. Now, for a sister who's wearing an underscarf and it's too tight, 
The scholars were asked about this, and this is a classical question. If she's been wearing it all day, and she had made wudu before, and she wore the tight underscarf, and has not taken it off, and needs to make wudu again, she can wipe over it. Because there are multiple hadiths in the books of the, 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 the Sihah Sitta, we call them the six books of hadith, where the Prophet ﷺ wiped over his turban, over his hat, over his uh, khimar, and same goes for women. As for the uh, socks, now that's another niqab and what is it? Putting your pants below the ankle question. So again, there is a difference of opinion among the schools of thought. All of them agree that leather socks that are tight over the ankle, if you had made wudu beforehand and then you wore them, leather, you can wipe over them, not a problem. When you make wudu, wipe once. You just get water, you sprinkle off your hands, and you wipe with the right hand or the left on the top of your foot, and the left one on the top of that foot once. You don't soak it, just wipe. Okay. That's unanimous leather. The difference of opinion is material. So if it's wool or if it is uh, um, cotton or something else. So this is technical. One group of scholars say you can on condition that it's thick enough that when you sprinkle water and it doesn't go through. So it has to be thick socks and that's the correct opinion inshallah which I follow. Uh, obviously not from my head, from the opinions of the scholars, of the schools of thought. And a minority of them have mentioned, even if it's very thin, but the evidence is weak for that. But Rasul authentic hadiths say, he used to wipe over the khuf. The khuf is leather. Wal-jawrabain. Al-jawrab is non-leather. And there is a book called Fiqh Sunnah by Sayyid Sabiq. If you want to read that, it details it. And others like it. So, uh, I, I, I've studied the Hanbali Madhab when I did Sharia and uh, the other schools of thought, briefly. And the opinion that I follow is the opinion of the scholars who say that even thick socks is okay. Now, I've got to be careful. Some brothers and sisters, they take schools of thought too strictly and very zealously to the point where when you come to pray imam they'll say did you wipe over your socks if you say yes they walk away they won't pray behind you because they believe your salat is not accepted this is extreme even the schools of thought did not use that mentality and approach and one example I can give is when imam al-shafi'i do you know who I'm talking about imam al-shafi'i or am I just imam al-shafi'i if you know who he is he, Imam al-Shafi'i He came after Imam Malik And before Imam Malik was Abu Hanifa In the Hanafi Madhab They go with leather socks Imam al-Shafi'i uh, Sorry, uh, in the Hanafi Madhab When they pray They don't raise their hands All the time Only once, the first time Imam al-Shafi'i's Madhab They raise their hands When they get up from Ruku'ah And when they go into Ruku'ah Raised like this So Imam al-Shafi'i went and visited Kufa Which is in Iraq And Imam Abu Hanifa used to be there and he had his grave slightly distant from, from the mosque, which he used to give his uh, dars and his lessons in. So when he was praying in the masjid, Imam al-Shafi'i, they saw him not raising his hand. He left it. When they questioned him, Ya Imam, in your madhab, in your school of thought, 
You tell people to raise it and you have your evidence. Why did you stop doing it here when it's in your own school of thought? He said, out of respect for the owner of that grave, Abu Hanifa. He looked at the, the people. They are his students. And he doesn't want to cause a clash or a fitna between them and, lose, and disrespect their teacher and go to him. So he left out something which has difference of opinion and both have evidence because either one can be correct. It doesn't matter. And Rasul also said, if a alim makes a mistake in his fatwa, he or she gets one reward. And if they get it right, they get double. So this is what we call difference of opinion that has evidence and people should not go to extremes that way. I've seen marriages, divorce, because one follows a school of thought, the other one follows something else. Which I think, I did a, a YouTube clip about the 12 questions you should ask when you get married. I think it's 13. We should make it. Probably even 14. What madhab do you follow? Oh my God. What school of thought do you follow? People can leave each other because of that. That's absurd. It shouldn't be like that, subhanAllah. Anyway, that's another topic. Is the wudu valid if a sister is wearing makeup and can she splash it on her face rather than wipe her face? Will it be acceptable? The answer to that, sisters, it depends on the type of cosmetics you're wearing. If it is water permeable, meaning the water can get through, then it's okay. Secondly, you have to wipe your face. You can't just splash it on there. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it in the Quran to wash. Wash means to put your hand on something and scrub it and wash it. Okay? Al-ghasl. Ghasl is to wash. Splash has a different meaning. So what are we going to do about that? Hmm? It's our sister's problem, huh? We don't have that problem. <laughs> you know, I've seen men wear makeup. Well, once I was in Sri Lanka and uh, they wanted to interview me. First time in my life, professionals come to interview me and the amount of makeup they put on me, I started questioning my identity. <laughs> Even my voice changed. Would you believe that? Subhanallah. <laughs> you know I'm joking. I'm still a man. Next. Brother is asking, is shaking hands with someone who is a non-mahram to you, break your wudu? If a woman, if a man shakes the hand of a woman who is not mahram to her, correct? Does it break your wudu? The answer is no. It does not break your wudu. Why? There is absolutely no textual evidence in the Quran or in the Sunnah, in any hadith, that says this breaks your wudu. No textual evidence. Some scholars said this as an opinion, but there is no textual evidence. So you're not obliged to take that. That's a good question. What about old ladies, old men? Actually, the Quran, I, I, I was reading it before and I didn't talk about it. The verse in Surah An-Nisa talks about really old men and really old women who no longer have sexual desire of any sort. So they're like 85, 90 years old. Uh, or, or men who are what we call impotent. They're known that they have no desire whatsoever. Now, it's hard these days to, to know who that is. So when you're in doubt, just keep your hijab on. Uh, I'm still answering that, brother. And you're the one who asked the question, right? Oh, no, the yeah. So also a woman who is very old, who no longer has uh, sexual desires, she can, her hijab can be a little bit loose. So showing a little bit of her hair, a little bit of her uh, neck, a little bit of her, her arms. That's okay for a really old woman. Uh, that's okay, inshallah. 
Yes, ma'am. What is the ruling on shaving the beard or even trimming it short? Should we, isn't it mandatory to grow the beard? So, brothers, all these questions have lots of difference of opinion among them. And they're all what we call khilafun mu'tabar. They are differences of opinion with evidence on both, on both sides. <clears throat> Generally speaking, I can tell you what all the scholars agree on. What all the scholars agree on is that it is a sin, it's forbidden for a man to completely shave his entire beard. Okay, all the four schools of thought have agreed that halq al-liha, shaving it with a razor, is not allowed. As for the length, there's difference of opinion. In the Shafi'i Madhab, you can have any length. In the Hanbali Madhab, it has to be at least a fistful. Uh, in the Hanafi Madhab, you've got to let it grow. But all of them agree that you've got to trim the moustache. Not shave it, but trim it. So, there's the difference of opinion about that. Now, oh yeah, if there's paint on your hands, if there's a few spots of paint on your hand and you want to make wudu, will the wudu be valid? The answer is yes. If it's small, tiny spots, it's okay. Tiny. Tiny. Yeah, tiny, big spots is okay, inshallah. It does not invalidate your wudu. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just giving you the summary. This is the fuqaha. The jurist, jurists have already spoken about this. If it's small, tiny spots here and there, it doesn't affect your wudu. No, it doesn't affect your wudu, inshallah. Unless it's significant, like big, like a palm or half a palm. You need to take it off. Little spots don't affect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Sister is asking, if somebody started praying at, say, 24 for the first time, do they have to make up all the salats they missed out on before 24, from puberty until 24? And can they do it as part of qada, meaning making up in between prayers? That's a good question. And again, uh, the scholars have given two advices about that. One opinion is, yes, you've got to make them up anyway. Because of what the verse in the Quran says that Salat in Salat Kanat al Mumina Kitab Mawkuta. Salat is a uh, is an obligation upon every Muslim, every person at a specific time. And you have to make it up, they said, for the rest of your life until you end it. If as much as you can remember, they said. And the way they said is uh, when you pray a prayer, add another one and then just do as much as you can. However, the other opinion is they said no. Because of the Rasul sallallahu alayhi said, Whoever repents from a sin, it's as if he had no sin. And many other hadiths similar. Whoever repents from a sin has no sin. And leaving prayer is a major sin. So whoever repents, they don't have to. And again, I follow that opinion because the evidence from there is stronger, inshallah. So I would say uh, the opinion I follow is you don't have to make it up. But if you do want to, some scholars say, just to be on the safer side, if you are able to, every now and then add some extra prayers with the intention of making up prayers that you've missed. On that note, Sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.